Harold Wilson once said, a week is a long time in politics. A week is a long time in sustainability too. This week's keynote is my interview with Callum Roberts, Professor of Marine Conservation at the University of York. He's concerned about the health of the world's oceans and he tells us why we should be concerned too. But first, Drax is coming out of carbon capture and storage, Shell is coming out of the Arctic, Lisa Nandy comes out fighting, Al Gore is puzzled, and Mark Carney is concerned. Hello, yes, this is Anthony Day with the Sustainable Futures Show, a weekly magazine of all that's interesting, important or unusual on the sustainability front. The Sustainable Futures Show is brought to you without advertising, subsidy or sponsorship, but if you'd like me to come and help you explore the sustainable future for your organisation, do get in touch. Special rates for listeners to the Sustainable Futures Show. First this week, the law of unintended consequences. Drax Power has withdrawn from the White Rose Carbon Capture and Storage Project, CCS, on the grounds that it can't afford it. The government promotes CCS, but the government has modified a tax regime which has seriously impacted Drax. The Renewable Obligations Scheme is a tax on energy producers to fund subsidies for renewable generation. The government has now decided that renewable generators are no longer exempt and have to pay this tax as well. Drax was the UK's largest coal-burning power station, but has converted almost 50% of its operations to run on renewable biomass. As a result, it has enjoyed partial exemption from the renewables obligation. Now that the exemption has been withdrawn, it makes the economics of the plant look very different. The White Rose Carbon Capture and Storage Project was set up to prove the commercial viability of a technique that has so far only been proven in pilot plants. The plan is to strip the carbon dioxide out of power station emissions and store them permanently underground. In fact, not just underground, but under the bed of the North Sea. A 70-mile pipeline will be needed to get the gas out there. Other members of the White Rose Consortium have said they will still go ahead, but the absence of such a major player as Drax must raise some doubts. Without working CCS, burning coal or burning gas, including gas from fracking, will continue to put harmful emissions into the atmosphere. Shell announced this week that after investing some $7 billion, it's ceasing drilling operations in the Arctic. It says that what it found was not commercially viable, but there's speculation that international protest is partly responsible for the decision. For the last few weeks, Emma Thompson has been keeping vigil outside Shell's London office, accompanied by Greenpeace activists and a gigantic model polar bear. Whatever the reason for Shell's withdrawal, it's good news for the Arctic, removing a risk of pollution, good news for the planet as one more source of polluting fossil fuels is abandoned, and good news for shareholders as Shell stops pouring money down a hole in the ice. This week saw the Labour Party conference and a parade of new faces from Jeremy Corbyn on. 
Lisa Nandy is the new Shadow Secretary of State for Energy. She clarified Labour's policy on energy. There seems to have been a lot of clarification at the conference. Jeremy and I don't want to nationalise energy. We want to do something far more radical. We want to democratise it. There should be nothing to stop every community in this country owning its own clean energy power station. So the big six are safe for the moment, and the community energy movement, which is not insignificant, will be delighted. Not that Ms Nandy is likely to have her hands on the levers of power, or is that switches, any time soon. However, the current open consultation on feed-in tariffs includes a proposal for special terms for community energy projects, so let's hope she supports that. Al Gore was in London last week and he said he was puzzled by the Conservative government's measures to roll back support for renewable energy. Listing a range of recent government actions, such as slashing subsidies for solar and wind power and ending support for energy efficiency in homes, he said he couldn't understand the rationale for such measures, while climate change presents such a clear danger to the UK and the rest of the world. Will our children ask, why didn't you act? Or will they ask, how did you find the moral courage to rise up and change, he asked. Yes, Al, some of us are puzzled too. Some of us are angry. Some of us are worried. Mark Carney is worried too. This week, the Governor of the Bank of England made headlines when he said there might be radical regulatory action to force financial markets to recognise climate change as a serious economic threat. A climate disclosure task force set up by the G20 nations would set a voluntary standard for disclosure by companies that produce or emit carbon. Voluntary? That sounds a bit to me like the independent carbon disclosure project, which is also voluntary and has been in operation for years. Anyway, Carney went on to remind his audience that the IPCC warns that two-thirds of fossil fuel reserves must remain in the ground if we are to avoid catastrophic warming. This implies that the assets of some of the world's largest mining and oil companies are seriously overvalued. And if this carbon bubble were to burst, it could bring on the next financial crisis. Mr Carney is warning of issues that have been known for years. Jeremy Leggett is delighted because he set out the whole idea of stranded, i.e. worthless, assets in the Carbon Tracker Report in 2011. He says, I think it is now likely that there will be a tipping point in retreat from fossil fuels in 2016. Could the canary finally be singing in the coal mine? Oh, George Osborne's just shot it. And now for this week's key interview. So, uh, Callum Roberts, you are Professor of Marine Conservation at the University of York and author of Ocean of Life, How Our Seas Are Changing. Well, first of all, thank you very much for taking part in the Sustainable Futures show. You completed your book almost four years ago on a cautiously optimistic note. Indeed, uh, only last week, the Marine Conservation Society announced that cod stocks are recovering in the North Sea and we can now eat it with a clear conscience as long as we only do so occasionally. 
But on the other hand, WWF and the Zoological Society of London issued their Living Blue Planet report, highlighting the fact that marine populations have declined by 49% between 1970 and 2012. But not only that, if you go into the report itself and you look on the front page, there's a whole list of headlines. I've just picked out a few. Nearly 3 billion people rely on fish as a major source of protein. That's almost half the world's population, isn't it? 29% of marine fisheries are overfished. More than 5 trillion plastic pieces weighing over 250,000 tonnes are floating around in the sea. Oxygen-depleted dead zones are growing as a result of nutrient runoff. And just 3.4% of the ocean is protected and only part of that is effectively managed. So we've got concerns. Now, what is the issue here? Is it the fact that we risk losing a significant food source or is there more to it than that? I think there's much more to it than that. Food is just one of the things that we get from the sea right now. And it's, it's the longest standing uh, service, if you like, that the, um, the oceans provide for us. Mm -hmm. So we've been eating seafood since at least 160,000 years ago. If you go to caves in South Africa, you find the remains of seafood dinners uh, trapped in the sediments there, going, going back to 164,000 years ago. We've been fishing commercially for probably 3,000 years. So the origins of uh, commercial sea fisheries can be traced back uh, 3,000 years ago in the Black Sea, 2,000 years ago or so in the uh, Western Mediterranean. In the northern part of Europe, we, it goes back about a thousand years, and the uh, origin of sea fishing grew out of a crisis in freshwater fish supply, which was itself due to um, rising demand, over-exploitation, the blocking of, uh, of migration routes for species like sturgeon and salmon uh, as we built dams across rivers, and uh, through the change in water quality as a result of pollution runoff from agriculture. So we've been having an impact on aquatic life for a very long time. Recently though, we have added a whole range of other sorts of impacts to the oceans. And uh, the most notable of those, of course, is climate change. So there is the, the, uh, the, the straightforward issue about global warming that's affecting the oceans just as it's affecting the land. And indeed, if it weren't for the oceans, we'd be absolutely sweltering on land by now, given the amount of energy that the planet has trapped. Most of that energy, 90% of it, is stored in the oceans. Uh, so that, that warmth um, is doing us a favour on the one hand, but it's also affecting marine life. It's causing species to move north and south towards the poles. It's increasing stresses in many places. It's contributing to things like deoxygenation of the water. And then there's another impact in the sea, which comes down to uh, a greenhouse gas, and that's carbon dioxide. Mm. And when that dissolves in the oceans, uh, it causes acidification to take place. The planet has seen acidification of the oceans before. It happened in the aftermath of some of the great extinction events in the past. It, it caused a, a great deal of strife for particular groups of marine animals that, that uh, secrete calcium carbonate or chalky skeletons and shells. And um, they find it very difficult to cope with increased acidity because um, that reduces the amount of the raw materials of their shells and skeletons that's dissolved in the ocean. So we're, we're into a new phase of a relationship between humanity and the sea, and uh, we're not sure how that's going to turn out. So humanity is the villain on two fronts, from causing climate change and also from overfishing? 
Well, I think uh, yes is is the short answer to that. Uh, but in the same way that we impact on land, you know, there are a whole range of different things that we do that affect ter terrestrial ecosystems. We've just not thought about the sea as much as, as the land. It's been out of sight, out of mind, typically. Mm -hmm. So people haven't noticed the scale, uh, the increasing scale of human activities and influences underwater. Yes, well, I think, in fact, this report that you can now eat cod got lots more publicity than the report about the um, living blue ocean report saying that things were not all as they should be. That's right. Well, COD, you know, it, it is positive news. Recovery of something is, yes. is a positive thing. And it's been a long time coming. It's not there yet with North Sea COD, but uh, the, the moves are in the right direction as opposed to the wrong ones for, for once. Okay. Well, I picked out, I cherry picked those headlines, which I quoted from the report, but there are some positive ones. It says the ocean generates economic benefits worth at least 2.5 trillion US dollars per year and increasing marine protected area coverage to 30% could generate up to 920 billion US dollars between 2015 and 2050. Could generate. Now, are you more or less positive than when you actually signed off your book four years ago? Well, I think uh, the, the science of marine protected areas is getting stronger by the year. And, and what we see is an increasing number of studies which show how when you protect an area of ocean, uh, the animals and plants start coming back there. So, um, you know, if you don't kill things, they live longer, they grow larger, they become more numerous, uh, and bigger animals are producing many, many times more offspring than small animals do. And so uh, that, that then starts to reseed areas of the ocean beyond the boundaries of these protected areas too. So uh, the, the, there are a couple of things about marine protected areas um, which set them apart really from the way we think about them on land. If you protect a terrestrial area, you tend to think of it as protecting life there. And um, you want to preserve it, you want to ensure the integrity of the, uh, the wildlife over the long term. But you don't necessarily expect it to start pouring out of the sides of the protected area and, and, and spilling into mm. cities and uh, suburban areas and so on. Whereas when you set up a protected area in the sea, that is very much part of the uh, objective. It's to use these areas to start reseeding areas nearby. You want to see the wildlife moving beyond the boundaries and into the intervening spaces. And it will do that uh, for two reasons. One is that as, as the conditions become more crowded within protected areas, then uh, species are, are competing more for resources, uh, space and food and the like. And so to find more of those resources, they, they, they basically move out. Uh, and that means moving into fishing grounds. So there's a supplement that you can get from a protected area in the sea to the fishery. It's not taking away from it necessarily. The other thing is that because the big fish inside protected areas are reproducing uh, prolifically, producing you know thousands, millions of eggs, uh, those eggs and, and larvae drift on ocean currents and they are taken to other places that aren't protected and, and will be able to reseed populations there. And that is a, a way in which a protected area can, can benefit the surrounding regions. So for example, in, a, um, in the Islas Medes uh, Reserve in Spain, we see that lobsters inside this protected area are producing 80% of the offspring in a huge area around it, which is fished commercially. 
and uh, there's also movement of lobsters from the protected area into the surrounding fishing grounds and they're also contributing to catches too. So there's a very positive effect uh, from protection. Right. And is which, this internationally recognized? Well, it is areas? becoming so. It is becoming yeah. so. Obviously, the science has to be done in order for us to quantify all of these benefits. And uh, people are, are busy studying protected areas all over the world and, mm. and generating that science right now. Mm. Um, but we know plenty now about how protected areas function to know that they're good for the ocean, good for wildlife, and good for fisheries. Right. There are two big um, um, causes at the moment. Greenpeace has a campaign against the tuna fishing industry, and there's also a lot of criticism of bottom trawling. What's your view on those? Well, my view is that uh, both are uh, being conducted unsustainably uh, more often than sustainably. Um, the problem with bottom trawling, to take that to begin with, is that um, when you drag a net along the seabed, especially when it's very heavy, they're weighted down by steel rollers often that are on the foot rope, uh, there are heavy steel doors which hold the net open. Mm. Um, those, those things dragging across the seabed destroy life on the bottom, as well as catching fish. So there's a huge amount of collateral damage done by a fishing method like that. And taken across the, the, the globe, um, the bottom trawling industry hits something like half of the area of the world's continental shelves every year. Mm. So it's a huge footprint that this yeah. industry has yeah. on the marine environment. Uh, and, and that isn't sustainable over the long term in terms of the broader wildlife uh, and nature and, and the way that marine oceans ecosystems work. Um, that's not to say that some of those fisheries are not sustainable. I mean, if you want to catch scallops and uh, you use a scallop dredge, which is a, a kind of a modified trawl, um, drag that along the seabed, it causes enormous damage to pretty much everything else that lives there. But it's good at catching scallops and th those scallops can be quite sustainable. And if, if you want to, you know, kind of undo the uh, conundrum of having something which is destructive and sustainable at the same time, think about scallops as being the uh, cockroaches of the sea, let's say, because what you have here is an animal that is able to live fast and die young and produce huge quantities of offspring. They can live in degraded environments. They're quite happy there. And so you can, you can sustain a fishery for that, but at the expense of wiping out fisheries for a whole range of other things mm. that used to live there. And that's a position that we're in in places like the UK where huge areas, especially of the West Coast, uh, have, have seen fisheries, traditional fisheries for things like cod and haddock and hake and uh, halibut and uh, turbot, all sorts of bottom fish eliminated um, by essentially two forms of fishing. One scallop dredging, the other is prawn trawling. If you go out and, uh, and catch prawns, you have to do it with a fine mesh net. Mm. And that fine mesh net will catch everything else. And so eventually you end up with just prawns and scallops and all the other fisheries have gone. And that's, mm. that's where we're at, uh, off much of the West Coast. Well, is there any move towards controlling or regulating this? Well, uh, there, there is insufficient moves towards controlling and regulating it. At the moment, regulators seem to think you can have... Um, all things at once and so you know just by tweaking this mesh size or that method or whatever or having a uh, an escape panel for some of the fish uh, sewn into the net so that while the prawns are caught the uh, the fish escape 
um, they will solve all the problems of the industry. They, they won't. There is an, an inherent incompatibility mm. between having a healthy ecosystem and a prawn fishery or a scallop dredge fishery. If we want to have both, then what we have to do is to constrain where you can scallop dredge and where you can prawn trawl. And, and those areas will essentially become denuded of much of the other life that uh, could exist there. Um, but there will be places where it will exist elsewhere. And so you can have your cod fishery then and you can have your prawn fishery and scallop fishery alongside it, but not in the same place. And that's the, that's the lesson that we have yet to learn uh, on the whole. Mm. Now, we've also spoken about deoxygenation and also about plastic, which actually breaks down into tiny, tiny particles, doesn't it? It and does, yes. Well, 250,000 tonnes in tiny particles is an awful lot of plastic. What are the implications of those? Well, plastics are, are an interesting uh, uh, sort of pollutant. They, they, we, we used to think of it as being pretty much harmless roughage, <laughs> unpleasant to look at, uh, ugly, you know, horrible when it washed up on the beaches, but otherwise not really doing very much harm. But now we can see, obviously, um, there is a, an impact from it. And the more plastic that gets into the sea, the more impact we're seeing. So uh, on the one hand, you see um, harrowing images of albatross chicks, which have died on the beaches. Uh, uh, and as their bodies rot, you, you see the insides of them just chock-a-block with plastic. You know, little dinosaurs, toy soldiers, bottle caps, uh, golf balls, all sorts of things are being fed to them by the parents. And the, the parents have no ability to distinguish between floating plastic and food. Mm. Um, you also see uh, images like turtles tangled in ropes and, and uh, sea lions with their heads through uh, nets. These are all horrible things, but it's probably some of the the worst damage that plastic pollution does is hidden from us, really. Mm. And that is, as it breaks down and down and down, then the smaller and smaller particles pick up pollutants from the seawater around them and those pollutants become concentrated on those plastic pieces so they are essentially sticking to them and so we we start to see things like uh, um, polychlorinated biphenols uh, which are very toxic uh, heavy metals pesticides herbicides all sorts of industrial and agrochemicals which are, are becoming concentrated on these plastics and because the plastics are so small they're they're eaten inadvertently by things like fish uh, and then they get passed up through the food chain and they end up in in animals like tuna and they concentrate in their tissues and then we catch them and they come back to us mm -hmm. so uh, you, you know we didn't expect that this problem would come back to bite us uh, and that's what it's doing right now mm -hmm. I think you're on record as saying that the pollution from the Deepwater Horizon the BP disaster in the Gulf of Mexico the pollution from that was in fact not nearly as extensive as the everyday pollution from leisure activities. Is that correct? Well, it, it certainly is true that uh, a bigger amount of oil goes into the sea from everyday activities like uh, watercraft than goes into the sea from oil spills. So commercial oil spills are one thing, they're the thing that grabs the headlines, it's awful to see uh, uh, birds struggling up beaches covered in black oil, but uh, things like two-stroke engines which are pretty much standard on many boats and jet skis and all sorts of things, uh, that, that passes oil straight out of the exhaust and into the marine environment. And taken together, 
the huge numbers of these craft everywhere and the huge numbers of uh, uh, or the huge amounts of oil that also get into the sea through runoff from the land you know from uh, carelessly uh, done oil changes from uh, you know dripping engines and so on all of that washing into the sea the amount of oil from all these activities is much greater than the amount from these headline mm. oil spills mm. um, and it's it's insidious and, and really unseen mm. and I think you were saying that it although it just lies on the surface it's the very very top layer which is quite important well the surface micro layer as, as it uh, you might put it is the, is the, the thin skin that lies on top of the ocean and, and essentially if you have that covered in this oil film, then that's going to interfere with all sorts of uh, important exchanges between atmosphere and ocean, chemical exchanges uh, in particular, and and uh, uh, oxygen exchange. That's another thing that c it can interfere with. So what what you see is that this this micro layer uh, could impact on uh, on chemical ecological processes in the sea very uh, significantly. The other thing is that a lot of uh, fish eggs float, so they're essentially stuck in that microlayer. So even though all you might see is a very faint sheen on the surface, that, that is coming into contact with a very delicate life stage uh, of, of an organism. And so there's a potential for significant mortality of organisms at, at a key moment in their lives. Okay. I've also read somewhere that um, jellyfish are becoming far more common now is this well what's causing this and is it a problem well jellyfish uh, can grow at an extraordinary rate uh, once once the conditions are right you you, you can see jellyfish uh, doubling tripling uh, uh, multiplying tenfold in numbers over periods of uh, literally one or two days and and uh, that's partly because most of a jellyfish is water <laughs> so that uh, it doesn't take much energy to grow a jellyfish once it's uh, it's it's got itself going what they do need is nutrients and uh, like anything else they don't like being eaten so you know if you want a jellyfish explosion have lots of nutrients and not many things that eat jellyfish around now we've been very good at taking out a lot of the animals that uh, eat jellyfish uh, so overfishing is depleting populations of a, a wide range of uh, animals that are, are jellyfish specialists uh, and uh, we're adding huge quantities of nutrients to the sea so a lot of agricultural fertilizers run off into the sea um, also uh, sewage effluents industrial effluents are fertilizing the sea all the phosphates and nitrates from those um, jellyfish love that and and they don't mind warming water uh, that's that's actually pretty good for jellyfish and they don't have any chalky body parts so they're not affected by ocean acidification so jellyfish are seeing conditions for survival really becoming very good right now and that's why i think we're, we're seeing more and more jellyfish outbreaks around the world but they're not a fish uh, not a a food fish are they well they are eaten in asia um oh. they are eaten in dried form so uh you know they're, they're, uh, they're not exactly what you might call uh delectable food i mean i i i will uh will uh, submit to the opinion of uh, any person who is a jellyfish fan but uh, i have heard them described as crunchy nothingness <laughs> um, and if if you want to uh, get by as a jellyfish predator, then you will need to eat something like half of your body weight in jellyfish every day because the nutrient content is so low. Ah, right, okay. Well, you've outlined a number of um, threats and issues. 
controlling these things, turning things round, is going to be quite difficult. I mean, uh, how how resilient are the oceans? How much more time have we got? Well, we we have some time, but not much. <laughs> if you if you want to put it that way, um, the oceans will still be here in a hundred years' time, even if we did nothing today uh, to curtail human impacts. There will still be life in the sea. And there will still be quite a lot of it, but it will be very different from the life we have today. Um, there'll be a lot more small stuff, less large stuff, less of the things that we like to eat, more of the sorts of things that we don't, more of the sorts of things that make it unpleasant to get in the sea, like the jellyfish and other things like harmful algal blooms. And, and uh, so it's not going to be a place that is desirable. So that means that really what we need to do is to steer a course towards somewhere better in the future and uh, we can do that by protecting more uh, polluting less uh, and fishing less so by fishing less we will actually catch more in the long term by building stocks up um, so it, it's a matter of turning things around by changing the way that we relate to the oceans uh, they need far more protection than the three percent or so that they have right mm. now um, gladly uh, we are seeing new protected areas being established um, week by week month by month uh, and, and some very large ones so the uk government has committed to protecting pitcairn for example and mm. a huge area mm. of sea around it the new zealand government announced yesterday at the united nations they're going to protect 620,000 square kilometers around the Kermadec Islands. There are others on the on the cards um, for the future. So we need to do a lot more of that kind of protection. We need to give protected areas a high level of protection from fishing activity, which is one of the root causes of the problems. Uh, uh, but it won't mean less fish for us to eat in the long term. It'll mean more. So really protecting is a win-win for us. Okay. And what can the individual person in the street do? Well, I think uh, campaign for more mm -hmm. uh, uh, marine protected areas would be a very good number one thing. There's, uh, there, there aren't enough really effective ones. Um, at the moment, the UK has something like uh, 100 thousandth of its waters protected from all fishing. And only three marine protected areas, all of them tiny, give that high level of protection uh, to life in the sea in this part of the Atlantic. We need much, much more, and, and we need to be building it up to tens of percent of the sea that are protected to that high level. There is strong public support for it. Uh, we've we've uh, canvassed public opinion uh, in surveys uh, here, which have shown that um, when you ask somebody, how much of the sea do you think is already protected? Most people come up with a figure around 20%. Mm -hmm. they, they are really shocked when you tell them that it's uh, such a tiny number. Um, but uh, when you ask them how much would they like to see protected, well, the answers come in at around half. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a strong level of uh, support for greater protection of the sea, uh, and that, in the long run, is in all of our best interests. Well, Callum Roberts, thank you very much indeed for that. That's most interesting. Thank you. Callum Roberts is Professor of Marine Conservation at the University of York. His book, Ocean of Life, How Our Seas Are Changing, is published by Penguin and is available from your favourite bookshop. The 49% statistic we discussed has caused some controversy. What does it actually measure? This was taken up by BBC Radio 4's statistics programme, More or Less. 
They interviewed Robin Freeman of the Zoological Society of London, and you can hear him on their podcast. The episode is called Striking Numbers, and the interview comes about 12 minutes in. And that's it for this week. Next week, there will be another episode. It might be a bit shorter, as I have a busy week ahead, and I'll be at the mega convention of the Professional Speaking Association, but there will be something. Before I go, a word to listeners in California. Do you have first-hand experience of the drought or the wildfires? I'd love to interview you about it. Get in touch via mail at anthony-day.com. This is Anthony Day. That was The Sustainable Futures Show. There'll be more next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.